0: In the early 19th century, as medical science's demand for cadavers increased, so did the dark trade of body snatching. Grave robbers, known as Resurrection Men, capitalized on the increased need for corpses illegally digging up recently buried bodies to sell to medical schools. That's old news. But many different methods were adopted to try to stop such body snatchers, such as coffin torpedoes, and cemetery guns. Oh. My name is Torrin Atkinson, and I will be your guide to the world of cemetery guns. This information comes from RoyalArmories.org. You may have come across unusual trap guns online, where they are sometimes called alarm guns or cemetery guns. In reality, though, these weapons were simply known as spring guns and were used as far back as the early 17th century to protect all kinds of property. They probably saw much more use in game reserves, deer parks, or private land than they ever did in graveyards. In fact, all modern references to the practice refer back to the same source, Surgeon Bransby Blake Cooper. (laughs) of whom more later. Nonetheless, it seems likely that many a groundskeeper would have recourse to such a deadly weapon in their efforts to prevent the raising of the dead. Their purposeful yet exotic appearance and undoubtedly grim purpose also fit that gothic image of a misty graveyard, jutting headstones, and ghoulish figures with spades. Looking at the guns themselves, we find that those from the late 18th and early 19th century are mostly of a similar kind. Simple, flared, blunderbuss-style barrels and flint-fired musket locks mounted to an unusual wooden casing. Originally, a cover was fitted over the lock to protect against weather and dew, although no gun would survive being left loaded for more than one cold, damp British night. The guns are fitted with iron Pintles, or swivels, underneath, and have sliding trigger bars instead of conventional hook-shaped gun triggers. This allows the forward motion of a tripwire to pull the trigger forwards, not backwards, to fire the gun. At the front of the bar are usually three iron rings, allowing the gamekeeper, or graveyard sexton, to set up between one and three tripwires. Pretty cool. At its simplest, the trap could be set with the gun pointing in a fixed position with a single wire run across the surface of the ground for the unsuspecting victim to step on. Alternatively, three wires could be strung above the ground in an arc, tripling the chance of a passerby setting off the gun. The gun could be set into a wooden base, post, or tree stump, allowing it to spin freely. By walking into the wire, cord, or string, the gun's muzzle would be tugged in the direction of the target, almost like a primitive sentry gun. The next step was to load, prime, and cock the gun as normal. One of our guns has a simple pivoting safety lever or lever that prevents the bar from moving forward when in place. Both are missing their vent prickers, usually mounted to the right side on a chain, but one still has a rammer fixed to one side with a quote unquote worm on the end for removing loaded shot. The projectiles used were usually small shot but stones are also documented as is rock salt for a less lethal option finally the angle of the gun could be set using a simple iron locking lever that exerts pressure on the pivoting plate on the gun's underside allowing one to undo the lever adjust the gun to shoot in the direction of a victim's legs body or even head and then lock it in that attitude of course Even a wound to the lower legs could prove fatal in the days before effective medicine. Of course, these traps were quite difficult to conceal. Our sole source for the use of these guns in cemeteries comes to us from surgeon Bransby Blake Cooper, who relates the two main methods used to defeat them. Spring guns were often set in various directions in the churchyards, but these never answered the purpose intended by them if a resurrection is proposed to work where these instruments of danger were used, and when he was not intimate with the gravedigger or watchman, he sent women in the course of the day into the ground generally at a time when there was a funeral, to note the position of the pegs to which the wires were to be attached. Having obtained this information, the first object of the party at night would be to feel for one of these, and having found it, they carefully followed the wire till they came up to the gun, which was then raised from the surface of the grave mound, its usual position, and deposited safely at its foot. I have been told that as many as seven bodies have been taken out of one grave in the course of a night. Under these circumstances, the grave being filled up and restored to order, the gun was replaced replaced, replaced, precisely in the spot it had previously occupied wherever guns were kept set anyone straying into their path might be hurt or killed by them did people deserve to be shot at hurt or killed for the simple and common crime of trespass question mark this disregard for human life and the belief that if firearms were to be used in the defense of a property a human being should be in the loop gave rise to significant controversy In June 1775, a spring gun became a catalyst for revolution in the American colony of Virginia. As the Firearms History blog explains, the British governor of Virginia had appropriated stocks of gunpowder from the town of Williamsburg and stored them in a warehouse that was guarded by a spring gun. Two local Utes tripped the gun on the night of June 3rd, 1775, ironically enough, triggering the so-called gunpowder incident. And with it, Virginia's entry into the war on the side of the Patriots' From the 1860s through the 1890s, body snatching became a big problem in the U.S., and cemetery guns evolved into a more fatal defense to fight the menace. One design invented in 1878 required an armed shotgun to be placed inside the coffin. When the lid was raised, it showered the thieves with lead pellets right in the face. Another invention, I mentioned before, called coffin torpedoes, was essentially a landmine placed underneath the coffin, when the coffin was disturbed, the charge would detonate, tearing apart the grave robbers, including the very cadaver they were trying to protect. At least three men were killed when some, one such device exploded at a cemetery near Gann in Knox County, Ohio. Shout out to Gann! It was not until the 1820s that the movement to ban hidden guns gained momentum. Landowner and sportsman Edward Harbord third Baron Suffield took up the cause in 1825, remarking dryly, poachers are almost the only persons who escape being shot by spring guns, and relating a case where criminals had disarmed and reset a gun uh, on a public road, nearly killing a young girl. Lord Suffield went so far as to introduce a bill to ban the guns in 1826, but this failed. In the same year, however, a high-profile case rang the death knell for the spring gun, at least as an anti-personnel weapon. As the Preston Chronicle put it, a youth named William Lloyd, employed in the factory of Messrs. German and Co., and whose labor was the chief support of a widowed mother, went into car wood during the dinner hour, and coming in contact with the hidden snare of a spring gun, was dreadfully wounded about the legs. Some of the shots with which the gun was charged have been extracted, but others remain in the flesh and about the bone, which it is impossible to draw out. And should the wounds finally heal up, it is greatly feared that the youth will be a cripple for life. Oh, no. If neither humanity nor a sense of what is due to the outraged feelings of the public are to have any effect in procuring the abolition of these murderous instruments... Perhaps the fear of legal consequences may, in the end, lead to their disuse. If death were to ensue in any of these cases, we know not by what process or process of legal subtlety any juryman could reconcile to his conscience to bring in a verdict of justifiable homicide. We take it. That if any person were to shoot another by hand, merely because he happened to tread upon a certain spot in the field, no law of trespass would save him from the punishment due to murder or man's laughter. <laughs> 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 and he must be a clever ca- ca- cas- 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 casuist. Casuist. Ca- cas- what is that word? I have to look it up now. C A S U I S T. Oh, it is a word. A person who uses clever but unsound reasoning, especially in relation to moral questions. A sophist. Casuist. Casuist. That's okay. Uh, he must be a clever casuist indeed, who could point out the moral difference between this mode of destroying a fellow creature and that of so placing a deadly instrument as to produce the same effect with equal certainty. The following year saw spring guns banned following the death of a man called Guthrie in Scotland at the hands, indirectly of course, of a James Craw in Scotland. The standing homicide law was deemed to already legislate against such an act, but English law demanded a specific new piece of legislation, namely an act to prohibit the shedding of spring guns, man traps, and other engines calculated to destroy human life or inflict grievous bodily harm. That's the Public General Acts, 1827. Page 11. This act included anyone who knowingly allowed a trap to be set and therefore rendered landowners liable for the efforts of their staff. An exemption for hunting and vermin was included, but the days of the classic spring gun were numbered. Later equivalents tended to fire blank charges as an alarm and deterrent rather than a life or death hazard, culminating in the modern bird-scaring gas guns that you can hear in the fields today. While things like cemetery guns and coffin torpedoes are often seen as artifacts from a past era, body-snatching as a trade is not entirely over. In India, a network of body-snatchers operate to this day, removing skeletons from graveyards in order to sell them to universities and hospitals abroad. For the last 200 years, India has been the world's primary supplier of bones used in medical study the world over, including the U.S. and Britain. The country is renowned for producing specimens scrubbed to a pristine white patina and fitted with high-quality connecting hardware. The trade is illegal and has been banned by the Indian government, but as long as there is demand for skeletons, body-snatching, or as I like to call it, corpse-poaching, will continue to thrive. So check out royalarmories.org to see the pictures of the cemetery guns. Pretty cool. You've heard about the Star Cruiser, the Star Skipper, and the Space Hopper. But Space Corp would like to introduce you to our newest rocket yet. Brand new for the year 2000, Space Corp is unveiling the Spaceship Zero. The first ever ship of its kind outfitted with a new interstellar engine we call the Better Than Light Drive. Better than light, you ask? Why yes, our new proprietary technology outpaces the competition when it comes to light speed drives. Our new engine creates a gravitational field in front of the ship, effectively turning the Spaceship Zero into a sled, sliding down an infinitely long hill. The best part is the btl drive can create a gravitational pull so strong it propels the zero faster than the speed of light and it does it with less fuel than our competitors who are still limited by light speed (laughs) be sure not to miss our inaugural flight on june 5th of this year oh before i forget i wanted to tell you guys about a project called osrin west this is a comic book it is D&D meets the Wild West in a three-story fantasy western anthology by Jeff Folsham This is a fellow I met because he was doing a uh, live play on Twitch of the Spaceship Zero role-playing game, which I helped to create and design, uh, and so I've kind of been uh, chatting with him over the past few months, and he just put this on Kickstarter, so... Uh, he's a very good artist, and I recommend that you check out Osrin West, O S R Y N N, uh, on uh, Kickstarter. Check it out. I think you'll like it. I pledged. Hello, Gotham City. It's me, Bane, and it's time for me to read RPG Horror Stories. This story comes from the Reddit user, Ya Boy Genghis, from what's the day today? September 2nd, 2021. Backstory. The year is 2016, and we are playing a campaign where we are are a group of warlock multi-classes who are trying to find the grave of an ancient vampire. We have been playing for like three months, and we are reaching the end, where we find the grave map, but not before we accidentally let the wizard who made the map escape. Who is it is kidnapped. We race to the grave. We make it there at the same time as the vampires. The fight starts. The vampires rip us apart. And it's obvious that a TPK is possible. TPK is a total party kill. It means everyone in the group is killed. One player begins to get really annoyed each turn. He starts saying things like, ''Well, I'm out to spell slots, so I'll just do magic missile again.'' We can't flee, because if the vampire rises... Ah, the vampire rises. It'll be a whole thing. We'd already swore to each other we would die before letting him rise. Roleplay intensive. The vampire starts knocking us unconscious, and eventually the last PC falls. So the DM starts narrating how the vampires removed the holy relic that kept the Ancient One asleep. He rises and begins to march towards the kingdom, ready to reclaim the throne. The player interrupts him and says, That can't be it. How do we come back? The DM says you don't come back. You roll up the new characters who will continue where you left off. We all start pulling out our backups and the player immediately gets mad. Bro, you're a fucking asshole. What story ends with the heroes losing? Oh, let me tell you. Bane lives that every day of my life. He gets up and leaves his own house. (laughs) Him and his sister hosted the campaign. We start working out our backstory connection while he's gone and end the session after he leaves. We figure he'll be fine once it cools off. The next session rolls around and we're all setting up and he's sitting in his room playing a game. his a video game, I guess. It doesn't specify. Maybe it's another Dungeons & Dragons game <laughs> by himself. His sister tells us he's not coming, so we move on without him. He walks through several times and loudly scars at us playing d d He then texts me, asking me if I want to come play Mortal Kombat. Uh, eventually he comes and sits at the table and asks about the story. The DM gives him the cliff notes and he literally laughs during the DM story. The DM looks a bit dejected, so his sister tells him to go back to his hovel. And that's the end. That's the end of Bane Reed's RPG Horror Stories. For now, take control of your city. Goodbye. <laughs> This article comes from allthatsinteresting.com by Amy Lamoureux from 2018. One of the enduring mysteries of the American Civil War was a little-known phenomenon referred to at the time as Angel's Glow, or the glow seen on some soldiers' wounds after the Battle of Shiloh. Doctors at the time noted that soldiers whose wounds had this strange emission of light seemed to fare better than soldiers whose wounds did not. Interesting. The Battle of Shiloh was one of the bloodiest of the Civil Wars. Union forces led by General Ulysses S. Grant gathered near Shiloh, Tennessee, to prepare an attack into Mississippi. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi. However, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston had been gathering troops in Corinth, Mississippi, and they launched a surprise attack on April 6th, 1862, driving the Union forces back against the Tennessee River. Grant was able to hold his position, and that night he received 20,000 reinforcements led by General Don Carlos Buell. Buell? Buell? The Union forces resumed the fighting the next day and were able to to force the Confederates into retreat. However, the victory was hard won, and over 20,000 casualties were amassed between the two sides. On the night of April 7th, After the fighting was over, many wounded soldiers remained in the middle of the muddy field waiting for rescue. During the night, some of the men noticed that their open wounds began to glow in the dark, displaying a greenish-blue color. Ooh! Will-o'-the-Wisps. I predict Will-o'-the-Wisps. The The men had no explanation for the strange glow, but doctors soon discovered that soldiers who had reported seeing their wounds glow had a higher chance of survival than soldiers who did not. Not only that, they also seem to have lower rates of infection. Moreover, their injuries appeared to heal much faster than their non-glowing counterparts. This unexplained healing caused the soldiers to dub the phenomenon Angel's Glow. The cause of the glow was not discovered until 139 years later in 2001. That's when 17-year-old high schooler Bill Martin toured the Battle of Shiloh and learned of the so-called Angel's Glow. As part of a school science project, he and his mom, and microbiologist Phyllis, and his friend Jonathan Curtis decided to investigate investigate, investigate, look into that. They began by identifying types of bacteria that glow in the dark. Then they cross-referenced these with historical records to determine if any of these same bacteria might have been present at Shiloh in 1862. It turns out there was indeed a bioluminescent bacterium for which Shiloh was quite hospitable thanks to the presence of nematodes, which are parasitic worms that burrow into the blood vessels of larvae. Inside these nematodes is a bacterium called Photorhabdus luminescens. Once they have found a suitable host larva, the nematodes vomit up the bacteria, which produces a chemical that kills the host and all the surrounding microorganisms. This bacteria produces the faint green glow. Once the host has been killed and eaten, the nematodes eat the P. luminescence and begin their search for a new host. The Martins and Curtis posited that in addition to producing the glow, the bacteria was also most likely responsible for the increased survival rate. The chemical produced by the bacteria while eating the microorganisms probably also consumed other bacteria or pathogens that might enter the wound thus lessening the likelihood of deadly infection although the bacteria cannot normally live in an environment as warm as the human body the trio studied the conditions of the battle and concluded that on a cool april night near swampy terrain the nighttime temperatures by the river would have dropped low enough to cause hypothermia the cold and wet conditions likely lowered the soldier's body temperatures enough to be hospital, hosp- hospitable not hospitals but hospitable to the bacteria which then most likely entered the open wounds through the soil and survived, creating the Angel's Glow that helped the soldiers live through the night until they could receive medical attention. The Martins and Curtis's study of P. luminescence and the cause of Angel's Glow earned them first place at the 2001 Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. Congratulations. Hey, it's Sarah from Adventure EXE. Why not tell your friends about Torren's Guide to Everything? If you have ideas for future episodes, questions, or just want to complain, well, you're going to have to go and like the Facebook page, subscribe to Torren Atkinson's YouTube channel, and tweet him at at @thickets. And if you like this content, go to patreon.com slash Atkinson and throw him a couple of your Earth dollars. Torrin would love it. Music generously provided by Thomas Falk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you... On the internet.